1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, I have been waiting to interview our next guest for many, many years. He knows American foreign policy and American military policy inside and out. He's a retired United States Army colonel, former chief of staff to United States Secretary of State Colin Powell. But since retiring from the military, he has criticized many different aspects of American foreign policy, including the Iraq War, which a lot of people believe Colin Powell's presentation to the U.N., actually helped sell to the American public as well as a lot of other different aspects of American foreign policy, not only in the Middle East, but around the world. Uh, It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Lieutenant Colonel, excuse me, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Colonel, it's a, a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.
0: Good to be with you. And let me just add that I was also his special assistant when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs and with regard to the Ukraine crisis. That's probably a more uh, enlightening experience, if you will, than any other.
1: The uh, I can imagine. So give me your view of the situation as it stands now. We saw the speech that uh, President Zelensky gave to Congress. He has a lot of people um, in support. It seems more people than ever in support of American, American help establishing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, or short of that, at least giving the Ukrainians the weapons that they need in order to set up a no-fly zone themselves. How do you view the situation as it stands
0: now a no-fly zone as secretary lloyd austin secretary of defense has pointed out dramatically would be a non-starter in my view it would be a provocation to war and that would be a provocation to what uh, we talked about yesterday at a meeting downtown my first meeting in washington in two years in person uh, with some soviet experts russian experts now Um, That would probably be a, a lead into a nuclear exchange that might start very realistically might start with a low yield tactical nuclear weapon, which is now published doctrine for the Russian military that they will use such a weapon in Kiev or someplace like that. We don't want that because that leads to far greater destruction, maybe even a general use of nuclear weapons over 44 million people in Ukraine. That would be like, in very brutal military wheelist terms, 44 million people and their duress bringing the rest of the world into nuclear catastrophe. So I am very happy that Joe Biden, as president of the United States right now, understands that progression of events and is going to do all he can to prevent it. That said, Ukraine is a tragedy, and it's a Vladimir Putin-introduced uh, tragedy. The heads of the Ukrainian head and the Russian head of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which published its most devastating report on 28 February, summed it up quite well. Well, brave man, the Russian head of delegation, I wonder if he's still alive, if he went back to Moscow. He, he condemned his own leader's invasion and said, this is distracting. Look at what we're doing. Mm. We're fighting in Ukraine essentially over the fossil fuels that are going to destroy us all. He's right, and the Ukrainian head of delegation, of course, echoed his thoughts. That's the the essence of this tragedy in language writ large across the globe. It distracts us from more important crises, tragic as it is. It's not anything more than a transient event in and of itself. The bigger crises are staring us in the face.
1: Well, what, what do you think the bigger crises are at the moment?
0: Well, the, the two that bother me every day are the two we talked about yesterday, nuclear weapons. And now we have Russian published military doctrine that they will use tactical nuclear weapons. This is a first since nuclear weapons were invented. Um, we have reposted, if you will, under Donald Trump. We started a trillion dollar plus rehabilitation of our nuclear weapons. One of the purposes is to build a weapon that will counter that weapon for the, from the Russians, and that's the reason we abandoned the Intermediate, intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty. The, re, the really powerful treaty that eliminated a whole sector of nuclear weapons is now gone, and we can build those weapons again. So that's an incredible danger. We've forgotten all the things we learned during the Cold War, the most important, point of which was that if we start a nuclear exchange, we're ending human life on this planet. And that's why Biden is so concerned about taking on the Russians directly in Ukraine. Uh, The second crisis is the one I just talked about, the climate crisis. Mm. Read that report. Even the summary, which has to be approved by every nation, but the technical section in particular, which is really down to the nitty-gritty, If we go to a 1.5 or a 2.0 world, which we're headed at, that is degrees centigrade, rise in temperature, we're going to find it extremely difficult to live. At a 2.0 increase, we're going to find it very difficult, if not impossible to live in many regions of the world, including the Levant, uh, Middle East, North Africa, uh, probably South America, and so forth. Um, If we go past that, human life, beyond mid-century is going to be harder and harder and then impossible. And we are very likely headed for three or four degree rise. So those two crises are crises we should be dealing with yesterday.
1: Uh, Keeping in mind the Ukraine situation and the first crisis that you just alluded to, I would imagine that means you're probably not in favor of working with the Polish government to help facilitate their transfer of MiGs to Ukrainian military pilots.
0: That's a different matter now. Um, I think that would probably exacerbate more than help the situation, but it's a different matter. I don't think that's as precipitous as it would be if the U.S. were to introduce itself directly into the conflict, like establishing a no-fly zone. Now, diplomacy is the only way you're really going to end this thing and end it in some way that's livable with and not leading to some of these other deeper crises. And diplomacy has all manner of ways it can go if some very astute people are involved in it. And I'm, there are some people like that in the world. I'm not sure we got any in this country, but there are some in Europe, there's some in Germany and France, and there's some in Russia. Sergey Lavrov is one of them, as much as we might despise him. He's a superb diplomat. Wang Yi from China could be called in on this because I think China is looking at this now with a very, very bifurcated view. They're too close to Putin, and everything Putin is doing right now, and what he's doing is making himself a world pariah, an outcast, is going to reflect on Xi Jinping as the party congress is coming up and as he's trying to establish his lifelong rule – the Politburo might have some second thoughts and third thoughts even about letting him go for another term, indeed letting him go to his, to his natural death, because they're seeing what it means for Russia right now with Putin. It's easy to envision Xi Jinping becoming that kind of person as he stays in power endlessly. So China could be an intermediary here. There are diplomatic ways out of this. It would mean Ukraine would have to uh, probably surrender autonomy at least if not all control over some of its oblasts. It might mean that that corridor the Russians have carved out, just short of Odessa right now along the Black Sea, might have to be surrendered. But it would end the conflict, and it would give them something they could live with. Maybe there'd be some low-level guerrilla warfare going on in those places. I suspect there would, because there are people who won't accept it. But you could handle that. You could work with that. So, the only way to really get out of this crisis in a way that doesn't threaten much larger interests is through diplomacy.
1: We're talking with uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, retired U.S. Army colonel, distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William & Mary, and former chief of staff to Colin Powell. You mentioned the China situation. A lot of folks uh, in our audience, and I've heard a lot of pundits on television and radio raise this concern as well, are concerned that China may use sort of the chaos that is is engulfing the international community at this moment as an opportunity to seize Taiwan. Now, the Chinese are saying that's not going to happen. The Taiwanese are saying that's not going to happen. How do you view the China situation as it relates to Taiwan in the present crisis?
0: That's always a concern as long as Xi Jinping is in charge of China because he's made some very forceful statements about uh, reestablishing Chinese uh, hegemony, and he's made statements that even would lead one to believe indirectly, at least, that he might be willing to use force to do that. But for the reasons I just stated, I think it'd be very precarious for him to do that right now, because that would, a precipitate move like that would confirm in many of the minds in China, particularly those on the Politburo, that uh, he's as dangerous as Putin. Um, I don't think there's a real appetite in China for using force. They know they're going to be ultimately preponderant in the region. They are already for all practical purposes. They know that the 23 million people on Taiwan working with them in some sort of cross-strait enterprise, which is what they've been doing, uh, half of the money coming from Taiwan's interest is shared with China and vice versa because of all the contacts they have across strait. So it would be it would be disruptive if something were to happen there and I think it would mar Xi's career majorly. It might even end his room, his reign. Um the Chinese the Chinese have a a more A more uh, variable leadership than we think, even with Xi Jinping being, you know, declared, self declared uh, a dictator for life, I think they would probably get alarmed at that and they would probably ease him out. Um, So I, I think he's going to be very circumspect about that. Now, there is one aspect of this that China savors, and that is that. And we don't realize how this affected them. When President Obama announced the pivot to Asia, people in this country said, oh, well, we didn't pivot. Well, we did pivot. If you look at what we've done militarily and otherwise, we did pivot, and that alarmed China. So this Ukraine crisis has refocused us on Europe for however long a period, but nonetheless it's done it. So Beijing's breathing a sigh of relief right now. And probably would, in one way, want to see this crisis continue and maybe even deepen so long as it doesn't Mm. go to nuclear warfare because they lose on that too. But uh, it does take our attention off Asia and put it back on Europe.
1: We, we see a lot of the images coming out of Ukraine, and a lot of Americans are very sympathetic to these Ukrainians that are being killed, and a lot of these Ukrainians that are losing their homes, forced to flee their country. And I, I think it's only natural that a lot of Americans feel the need to want to do something, whether it's something charitable and donating to an aid organization or something public policy-wise. And it, it, yesterday, the, uh, you know, the government announced, our government announced, Announced that they were going to be ramping up what we were going to be sending to the Ukrainians in the form of military aid. Is that going to be helpful? Is that going to help fewer Ukrainians be killed? Or is that only going to prolong a crisis that the Ukrainians have no hope of winning?
0: Well, it certainly is at this point in time and would more so in the future if what you're talking about comes about. We give them more anti-tank missiles, for example. Well, uh, President
1: Biden indicated it's, that we are, right? I mean, he's yeah, indicated hurting It's
0: hurting the Russians. There's no question about that. They've lost far more armor, particularly tanks and soldiers, than they ever envisioned they would. I'm afraid that doesn't mean much to Putin. Being a member of the bureaucracy that he was, the KGB and the spy service, if you will, he has a disdain for the military. He really doesn't – typically Russian leaders have a disdain for death in their military. Look at Stalin, two million-plus he lost in the Great War. Um They don't have any problem with sacrificing their youth, but the youth has a problem with being sacrificed. And with social media and all the rest we have today, there are probably a lot of this conscript youth in Ukraine right now who are asking themselves, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I doing this? These people I'm attacking, some of them speak Russian. Some of them confront me in the street and ask me why I'm in their country. I was told this was an exercise. I was told this was something we needed to do, et cetera, et cetera. There are real problems in the Russian ranks right now. So anything that you can do on the ground to help the Ukrainians defend themselves is going to going to give the Russians a lot of trouble. But you need to be negotiating at the time you're doing this. You don't need, as Sun Tzu well said, you don't need to back your enemy into a corner from whence he has no escape because that makes your enemy desperate. So while you're doing all of this, checkmating them, if you will, on the ground, you need to be talking, that using that, performance on the ground to bring some kind of pressure so that you can achieve a diplomatic solution to the problem and stop the crisis in its in its most tragic form
1: what do you think a uh, some sort of a settlement let me me say one other thing
0: Uh, the the humanitarian assistance is absolutely what should be going on we should be helping refugees we should be helping uh, children uh, we should be helping people to get out of the the war zone as it were We should be doing all these sorts of things, and the Europeans should, too, because they're a lot closer to it than we
1: are. What do you think a diplomatic solution would look like, whether it's something negotiated by the United States or something negotiated by the uh, Israeli prime minister who seems to be taking the lead in terms of being a mediator between the two countries? What would it look like?
0: Well, let me say something about that. Bennett is just trying to get Israel about out of its own pariah status that Netanyahu's long reign put it into. He'd do anything to, get, to make Israel look better. I'm not sure he's really doing any kind of negotiating at all that's worth a while. He's getting a lot of publicity for Israel. Um, but what a solution might look like would be something akin to what the Minsk Agreement tried to do. Everybody violated it on both sides, but. It would be allowing Putin to hold on to those regions that he thinks are so essential to him, principally those two oblasts uh, in the eastern section of Ukraine, which he virtually owned before he even invaded. And what I would like to see is some kind of referendum worked out so that in all the places that Putin was allowed to stay or some Russian force was allowed to stay or influence was allowed to be established, there's a referendum. And you find out what the people want. And it probably couldn't be immediately because now even the Russians in those sections would probably vote against Putin. But you want to have something like that eventually confirm the agreement that you set in place where the people in those areas actually vote and by majority vote say, yes, we'd like to be associated with Russia. But there'd be some autonomy, too. They'd be autonomous from Ukraine, Kiev, the government in Kiev. And also they'd be autonomous from Moscow to a certain extent. And then you just work out the deals like that with the rest of the terrain that by force majeure the Russians actually own at the end when you're negotiating. And you could live with that. And the Ukrainians could live with that. As I said, you might have low-level guerrilla warfare because there are some Ukrainians who simply aren't going to live with it like the neo-Nazis. Um, But you could probably get it down to the level where you could live with it and and, and you wouldn't have such a disturbance in the very heart of Europe. Um, That's the kind of deal you're going to have to work out. And if Putin doesn't want to do that, then we're going to have to give him his his incredible defeat because that's what he's going to have. He's not going to control this 44 million-person country bigger than Texas. He's simply not. It's going to be Russia's second Afghanistan and that's worrisome too because when russia starts collapsing economically financially even even with its people moving into the streets despite the imprisonment and everything putin's going to fall now when you make someone that desperate and you make someone like putin desperate watch out
1: I, I can imagine. Yeah, that's uh, certainly uh, a, a degree of unpredictability that uh, we certainly don't need at the moment.
0: You know, when I here's I've... a scary. Here's a scary thing from the Russian experts who were at the meeting I attended yesterday. This is not like Brezhnev. This is not like and This is not like Gorbachev Even this is not like the Kremlin of old. What what Putin has around him are people who are scared to even think about deposing him, because the moment they think that way and turn to someone else whose help they might need, that person will turn them in. Mm. Yeah. That's how tight the group is around Putin, and that's how obescent they are to him.
1: When I've pointed out that I think some sort of a diplomatic solution would look like basically what Putin has indicated are the conditions for him ending this war, which is recognition of Russian uh, control of Crimea and independence for the Donbass Republics while Ukraine swears off joining NATO in the future. A lot of folks say well we can't go along with that because that gives Putin what he wants for invading a neighboring country and that would only embolden him to do that again in other countries in the region. What do you say to that argument, that you can't. Other
0: countries, yeah, other countries in the region are NATO members or near NATO members, like Finland. Um, if you do it to them, an attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to have to say this, but we now have 29 other nations, including Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and Montenegro, whom the American people are signed up to risk nuclear war over. Mm. That's the reality of this wild abandon with which we've expanded NATO. Now you ask some Texan, if he knows where Montenegro is, and he'll laugh at you and say, no, sorry, show it to me on a map. And then you when you tell that Texas rancher out there in West Texas that he signed up for nuclear war to defend that country, he's going to laugh your ass off.
1: Yeah, and I that's can tell
0: that, that's what we've done.
1: And I can tell you here in New York, uh, there's not a lot of uh, folks in Brooklyn or Staten Island that are terribly eager to uh, go to war to defend Estonia either. So um, what is we've seen NATO expand dramatically since the Iron Curtain fell in spite of, you know, there was supposedly a verbal guarantee from Jim Baker and George H.W. Bush to Gorbachev and others, that uh, NATO would not expand eastward. They have expanded significantly. In your view, what is uh, the driving force behind NATO expansion over the last 30 years?
0: I think it was quite clear after Bill Clinton needed to win his second term and decided to make his foreign policy a major part of his persona and intervened all the way from uh, the Bosnia-Herzegovina-Serbian conflict to finally the really illegal war against Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia and Belgrade being bombed and so forth to get Kosovo. That's what really started Putin thinking about what NATO might do in the future. And that was the grave move that started the expansion to the point where Lockheed Martin could sell F-16s to Poland and all manner of other people, Georgia even. My president, George W. Bush, went to Tbilisi, and beside that, young president, Tsakras really essentially said Georgia would be a member of NATO in the future, and look what Putin did. He immediately invaded and took two northern sections of Georgia – Uh, It shouldn't have been difficult for us to figure out what we were doing and how dangerous it was, and we were doing it on behalf of defense contractors like Lockheed, like Grumman, like Raytheon, like Boeing, who wanted to sell additional weapon systems to new countries.
1: So this this NATO expansion, in your view, all comes down in some respects to the warnings that General Eisenhower gave, President Eisenhower gave in his farewell address, which is the military-industrial complex.
0: Absolutely. And it's not just, as, as my friend Ray McGovern has want to point out, it's not just military-industrial complex anymore. It's military, industrial, congressional, think tank, university. I, it's All manner of powerful influences in the United States who have joined up and said, aye, aye, sir, give me some of your money. Look at that Defense Department budget. Look at that national security budget. It's over $1.4 trillion annually now. That's a big gravy pie that everyone wants to join in uh,
1: eating. That is for sure. Now, obviously, I share your concerns about uh, NATO expansion. But just to play devil's advocate for a minute, keeping in mind your analysis, which I think most people would have a difficult time finding a hole in the in the logic of it, that uh, Putin won't go into a NATO country like Estonia, Montenegro, Finland or or maybe even a NATO-ish country like Georgia, um, doesn't that show that the old the, the old uh, fairy tale of the three little pigs, they all want to live in the brick house because it can't be b- b- blown down by the big bad wolf? Isn't NATO in this case the brick house? Doesn't that show that it's rational for countries like Ukraine and Georgia to want to be part of NATO because that essentially guarantees you're protected from a Russian invasion?
0: To a certain extent, you're right, but you're right in the old context. And, and let me just point out what I mean by that. A Russian journalist recently on a webinar with Tom Graham, if you know Tom, I've been a member of the National Security Council for President Obama. I think he might even be a member right now. But Tom, I've known for a long time. He's he's a Russia expert. And Fyodor Lukov, the Russian journalist, said this. He said, quote, the ultimate result of this crisis, the crisis in Ukraine, could be the third reorganization of Euro-Atlantic security since the 1940s. I think he's absolutely right. What we need is we need a new Helsinki Final Act, a new Paris Accord, whatever starts it off. It could be something done uh, in the auspices of this crisis right now initially and then spin into this. And we need a new transatlantic security. Let me tell you what the three fundamentals of that should be. One, Washington gives up its desire to reestablish hegemony over Western Europe. Two, Moscow gives up its desire to reestablish the Soviet Union's hegemony over Eastern Europe. And three, and most importantly, most importantly, Europe, now 740 million people, the third largest entity on the face of the planet, and with a GDP the equivalent of our own, stands up and takes responsibility for its own political, economic, financial, and security interests. That would be the realignment that should happen out of this crisis. That would be a positive. Then the big consortium of China, Europe, and America could get on meeting the crisis of the climate.
1: I guess the the first step in in anything that you're talking about, whether it's setting up a, a referendum in the in the two Donbass republics or reimagining transatlantic security, would be uh, negotiating some sort of a ceasefire here between Russia and Ukraine absolutely. while they hammer yes, out all absolutely. these details.
0: Well, absolutely, uh, we, we forget Russia's a part of Europe. Uh, look at your map, at least from the Urals in uh, to the west, Russia's part of Europe. Russia's tried since Catherine, to enter Europe in one way or another, peacefully, to associate with it. At Catherine's court, you had to speak French. That was the court language. And we've always rebuffed them, or they pulled in their efforts themselves. They need to come and be a part of Europe, as we envisioned in 1992 and 93 when Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We were thinking about making NATO uh, an open place for Russia to enter First politically and then militarily. Be a member of the alliance. We were actually talking about that. Look what we did to
1: that idea. Well, I mean, it's going to be difficult for a lot of Washington policymakers and a lot of rank-and-file Americans to accept Russia into uh, the international community after this invasion, though. Wouldn't you agree?
0: Absolutely. Look after 1917. We actually sent soldiers to try and beat them.
1: Hmm. Right. Um
0: you know, revolution that turned us off Russia for for a long time. Not some people. Some people were sympathetic and became communists themselves. We had a big, big problem with that in this country. But largely every time Russia is rebuffed or does something like the nineteen seventeen revolution they get they go into isolation again, and it's not good for Russia being isolation. They need to come out into the sunshine.
1: No, agreed. And uh, shame on the uh, American policymakers that have helped uh, precipitate the this kind of a condition. Lastly, sir, this makes is, money. They, makes money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you're right. This is the first time that I've had the opportunity to speak with you, and uh, that means it's the first time that I've spoken with you since Colin Powell, a fellow that you work with very closely, has passed away. Passed away back in October. i in brief, uh, any quick reflections of Colin Powell as either a man, a statesman, a soldier? What's your what's his legacy as a person and as a public servant?
0: Well, I sum it up this way: He was a great man, perhaps the greatest American I ever worked for or knew, and that's for sure. Perhaps a great American in the true sense of that term, and he deserved at the end of his term in government, a much better president, indeed a much better vice president and a much better administration. Um, But he felt that he couldn't leave that administration um, because if he did, he was afraid the person who followed him would be in sync with them. And he fought them for four years.
1: Lawrence, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, thank you so much for the time. I hope we could talk again in the future. Truly, thank you for the chance. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, straight ahead. All right, thank